0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I have a couple of disclosures to make first. My name is Julia Bascom, and I am the executive director for the Autistic Self Advocacy Network. In that role, um, I periodically... Um, Sorry, I periodically advise Anthem on disability policy issues. Um, Those are high-level conversations. I don't have any um, impact on individual coverage decisions or anything like that, and then Anthem periodically provides programmatic support for various things that my organization does. Um, Okay. Um, So, as noted, I represent the autistic self-advocacy network, or ASAN. This slide shows our logo, um, which is a Multicolored hexagon, shape with our name on it, as well as our website, autisticadvocacy.org. Um, we are a self-advocacy organization, which means a couple of different things. One, we are run by and for um, autistic adults, um, so all of our staff, our board, myself, are all autistic people, often with additional disabilities as well. Um, the other thing that being a self-advocacy organization means is that we approach questions about autism or disability from a disability rights framework or from a civil rights framework rather than a medical framework. I'm really excited to share more about how that can support you in the work you all are doing. Um, Our motto as an organization is nothing about us without us, which reflects our belief that whenever autism is being discussed, autistic people should be at the table leading that conversation. So I'm very happy to do that today. Um, ASAN is a Policy advocacy organization. So, our major focus is on system change to ensure that the systems that are designed to support autistic people and protect our rights are actually functioning well and have the resources that they need and are helping autistic adults achieve lives in which we have the same rights and opportunities and access as everybody else. Um, we do focus specifically on adults. Uh, most of the conversation about autism focuses on kids and young people. Um, so, we try to focus on the portion of autistic lives that most of us spend most of our lives as adulthood. Um, We do grow up despite popular belief. Um, We also, I want to be really clear, focus on all autistic adults, including autistic adults with intellectual disabilities, autistic adults who are non-speaking, and autistic adults with really complex medical and behavioral needs. Everything that I'm going to be talking about today applies to all of us, to the entire spectrum. I also want to note that most of our work is actually cross-disability. Yes? Sorry to interrupt you. If you can talk just a little slower, um, that would be appreciated. I will try. Part of my disability is that I don't notice the rate at which I speak. Okay, thank you so much. Um, We do try to do most of our work in cross-disability advocacy rather than focusing specifically on autism, so a lot of our work is across the range of developmental disabilities or other disabilities as well. Um, We find that regardless of people's specific labels, we tend to have more in common with each other than not. Um, So, I've only got 30 minutes, so I want to try to get through this content relatively quickly. Um, But I was asked to present the top 10 takeaways or lessons that ASAN has for medical providers based on our work. And I think the first and one of the most crucial lessons is that autism is not quote-unquote behavioral. Autism is often thought of as a behavioral condition, and it's important to understand that that's number one, not accurate, and number two, extremely harmful to autistic people ourselves. This dilemma happens because clinical descriptions of autism focus on autistic traits that are visible to other people. So autism is diagnosed based on behaviors, on the amount of eye contact that somebody makes, on how their social interactions appear to other people, on how we appear to relate to our environment, engage with our interests, on the ways our bodies move. Um, But those visible signs are really just the tip of the iceberg and they don't tell you much about what autism actually is. Most of autism is an internal experience. And that lack of awareness about the internal experience of autism leads to this really unfortunate belief that autism is a behavioral disability. So if autism isn't behavioral, then what is it? Autism is a set of pervasive neurological differences and neurological traits. It's a disability that primarily affects neurology. And that means that autistic people think and process sensory information and move and communicate differently. Um, Often autistic people will describe the sort of number one core component of the internal experience of autism as those sensory differences, which just have a profound impact on how we experience and relate to the world. Similarly, we have deep differences in how we relate to and control our bodies, differences in how our brains process and organize information, differences in how we communicate, which we'll talk more about later, And as a result of all of these things, differences in our social interactions with other people and observable behavior. But it's important to understand that those differences relate, uh, result from those deep neurological differences. Um, So going back to that external level, again, autistic traits are reflections of those neurological differences. They aren't really quote unquote behaviors in and of themselves. It's important to understand that autistic behaviors, as it were, are reflections of those differences. They're not volitional. They're not about motivation. They're not about social interests. They're about having a brain that processes the world very, very differently. Most theories about autism start from the foundation that autism is a behavioral disability. And as a result, most um, proposed supports for autistic people are built from those false assumptions, and this is a huge problem. In order to actually support autistic people, you have to really understand us and understand why we're doing the things that we are doing, and then you need to do everything differently based on that deep and accurate understanding. So, for example, um, often there's concern because it looks like an autistic child isn't paying attention. The child isn't making eye contact, they're fidgeting, they're doodling, they might be walking around the room while someone's talking to them. And so if we're coming from a behavioral mindset, the focus is then on changing that child's behavior to make it look like they're paying attention. When you talk to autistic people about our experiences, what you'll find is that due to the way our brains process information, especially sensory information, um, The most effective way for us to pay attention is actually to be moving our bodies around, to be looking away from the person who's talking, to be fidgeting, to be doodling, etc. Doing those things is a way to support us to pay attention. So with that understanding, you would change your focus um, from trying to change those behaviors to looking at, okay, how can we make it easier for this person to pay attention and how how can we support them to do the things that actually enable them to pay attention. Lesson number two. Everyone is rich and complex. Every person has a rich, dynamic inner life. This is a really important concept when you're working with people with developmental disabilities and it has two major implications. One, autistic people are whole people. We aren't a list of deficits. Um, We really need to reorient our thinking about autism the way we describe individual autistic people our focus when we think about autism, which right now is so, so, so deficit-based. We need to recognize autistic people's wholeness and value in and of ourselves. And number two, we need to recognize that autistic people have rich and complex interiorities, regardless of the complexity or intensity of our needs, regardless of how visible that richness and that interiority is to you. Um, And this is true, again, even when that's not apparent, even when someone appears to have um, major disabilities um, and it's hard to know what that person knows or what that person thinks. I'm not saying that every person with a significant intellectual and communication disability is necessarily doing abstract intellectual work, composing sonnets in their head or doing calculus, although they might be and they might not have a way to express that. Um, Nonetheless, regardless of what someone is thinking about, We all do have, again, that richness, that complexity, that dynamic web of inner associations and experiences, just like every other human being in the world does. And it's important to come in with that assumption and to respect that richness, even when it's not visible to you. The third major takeaway from our work is that access to communication is paramount for autistic people. If there's one thing you take away from this conversation, I really hope it's that. This is the most important thing to understand when you are working with autistic people. So I wanna break that concept down a little bit. Um, First, speech and communication are different things and speech and language are different things. Not every autistic person can talk about a third of us um, don't have speech that we can use to communicate our thoughts and feelings. Speech, though, is different from language. Just because someone isn't orally able to express language doesn't mean that that person doesn't have receptive language or doesn't have internal language that they need, that they have a structural language impairment or something else. You simply can't tell whether or not that's the case from a lack of speech. Similarly, speech is not the only way to communicate. There are lots of different ways that people can be communicating. Our focus needs to be on ensuring that every autistic person and every person in general has a robust and effective way to communicate. But that way doesn't have to be speech, and for autistic people often it won't be speech. Often there'll be a more effective way to access communication instead. Some people need support to communicate, and we're going to talk about what that looks like later. So again, just to take this away, not every autistic person can speak, but with the right support, every autistic person can communicate their thoughts and feelings in a way that other people can understand. So as I said, about one third of autistic people can't use speech to communicate. But most autistic people have some level of communication disability. Many, many more of us can't have some speech but cannot always rely on speech to express our thoughts and feelings accurately, comprehensively, and easily in real time, and all of those factors matter. If a person experiences a challenge with any of those, we should be looking at communication supports and communication alternatives so they aren't solely reliant on speech. And this brings us to AAC or Alternative Augmentative Communication, which hopefully y'all already have some familiarity with. AAC can benefit any autistic person who struggles with speech in any way. AAC can include a lot of different things. I think people are often most familiar with apps um, that you can use on a tablet or on a dedicated device that allow people to select words and phrases and put together sentences without using speech. Um, AAC also includes things like typing, handwriting, texting other people. It can include sign language. It can include eye gaze systems and a lot of different ways to communicate. There are no prerequisites for AAC. In order to use AAC, all someone needs is preferences and the ability to independently move one or more muscles in their body. If those things are in place, we can establish at least a system for that person to express yes or no. And from there, we can build out a robust communication system. I'm talking a lot about effective communication, so I really wanna define that term. Effective communication means being able to express what you're thinking and feeling in ways that other people can understand. It needs to be easy and accurate. And you need to be able to have that communication across a wide range of functions, commenting, protesting, arguing, talking about things that aren't here and now, not just requesting. So often we see autistic people provided with a communication system that really only allows them to say things like, I want ball, please. That's not effective communication. People are going to be extremely frustrated if that's the only method of communication that's available to them that other people can understand. Um, Access to effective communication should be the number one priority for a medical provider when serving autistic patients. If this isn't in place, everything else is harder for that person. If someone presents with a behavioral challenge, the first thing you should be looking at is whether or not that person has a robust, effective communication system in place that lets them express everything you're thinking and feeling. If not, I don't t- think it takes a lot of empathy to imagine what that experience must be like or to see why focusing on getting that communication system in place can drastically improve that person's quality of life. It might not adjust the underlying issue that person might have, an underlying medical or other issue causing the behavior challenge, but it will certainly make it much easier to figure out what that issue is and how to help that person. Um, there are a lot of great resources through the Office of Developmental Primary Care at UCSF about this. ASAN worked with... Um, that office to develop a a resource uh, on how to access AAC. I also want to plug Communication First, which is an organization dedicated to people who can't rely on speech to be understood that does a a lot of fantastic work at a policy level, at a practice level on helping people access effective communication. I also want to emphasize that access to effective communication is a human and civil right. Um, It's not something that's nice to have, It's not just best practice, it's a human and civil right. Um, As providers, you can play a pivotal role in making sure that people have access to this right and are able to exercise it effectively. Uh, The fourth takeaway is that autistic people can hear when you're talking about us. They can hear the things you say that you think about us even when you think we're not in the room. Um, The things that we hear about ourselves and about autism when we're growing up and as adults have a profound impact on us please choose your words carefully. Um, I wanna illustrate this with a really quick story. Um, So I'm someone who needs extensive support when I'm getting a blood draw in order to prevent me from pulling out my IV um, or the the needle. Um, A couple of years ago, I was waiting in the clinic to get a blood draw. I was having a pretty hard time and my support person was helping me. Um, And someone came out from the the part of the clinic where the lab is, and this was someone um, who appeared to be a woman with a significant disability. She was using a wheelchair, she had her aide with her. And there had been a few people like that coming in and out of the door. It was pretty clearly one of those like group home visits the clinic kind of days. Um, and the nurse was talking to another nurse as the door was open and she was saying, yeah, you know, the her aide was trying to work with her but it really wasn't working so I had to get in there and hold her down, but we got it done. So I'm about to go in and get a blood draw from this woman who's just talked about how you know, she was very pragmatic about restraining this other person who was having a hard time. That really impacted how my blood draw went. More significantly, imagine the impact that that had on the woman who just heard her experience dismissed so casually and so cruelly. Imagine how that's gonna make her feel the next time she has a blood draw. And honestly, that probably wasn't new to her. She's probably heard that before. She's probably had that experience before please, please operate from the assumption that we can hear you when when you're talking about us. Um, Fifth major lesson, we can support people with complex needs to make their own decisions. As I said, my organization's motto is nothing about us without us. This idea doesn't just apply to policy, discussions, it applies to our own health care. It's critical that patients with developmental disabilities are involved in, our, in the conversations and decisions about what happens to us and our health and our bodies. Often, when we talk about people with developmental disabilities making decisions about health care, we run into this issue of mental capacity. And it's really important for providers to understand that capacity is not some innate set thing, it's something that's constructed, it's something that's enabled. Instead of thinking about how limited someone's capacity is, we need to be prioritizing how to support that person's capacity and support their ability to make decisions. We know that there's a lot that can be done to help people with very complex needs, nonetheless direct their own care. Um, We might need to do things differently. We might need to slow things down. We might need to just approach things in a way we haven't done before. It's almost certainly going to take more time. That's okay. It is worth helping people with complex learning and cognitive and communication needs make their own decisions and have agency over their healthcare. This is a doable thing. This practice is called supported decision-making and so many resources have been developed about how to do supported decision-making in healthcare decisions with people with developmental disabilities. This field is growing every day. Every day we get more and more of a roadmap on how to apply this to people's lives. One key thing we've learned in our work on decision making is that time itself is an essential support, especially the more complex needs someone's are, the more complex someone's needs are. And this looks like a couple of different things. So, supported decision making might take more time than just making a decision on behalf of someone. Um, It takes more time to get to know a person and to really deeply know how they process things and how they communicate. It takes more time to present things in an accessible way that the person can really understand. It might take that person more time to process and to think and to make a decision. It might take a lot of different attempts over a long period of time. We need to build in that time. But when we think about that upfront and understand that that's a key part of supported decision-making, that becomes much more possible. We want to do things ahead of time whenever possible. People are often most successful when they're supported ahead of time. It's much easier to use supported decision making when something isn't an in the moment crisis that needs to be decided right then. Those situations can't always be avoided, but the more we try to do things ahead of time and build in that extra time to support people to make their own decisions, the more successful we'll be and the more agency that person will have. Practitioners might need to slow down in order to make this possible, and some of that has to do with how appointments are scheduled and billed. Some of that is a policy discussion. But some of it is also about turning off the autopilot that a lot of medical providers end up running on because you you know, you know, take someone's blood pressure dozens of times a day, you have, you've had the, the same basic health conversation thousands of times over your careers. Um, but when you're working with someone with complex needs who needs that kind of support, it's important to just take a moment and take a breath and slow down so that you can engage with the person in front of you in the conversation that they need to have right then. Do, something as simple as that really can make a difference between a person being able to authentically make their own decision with the right support versus someone um, not being seen as having the capacity and having someone else make a decision for them. Okay. Um, a seventh key takeaway is that autistic people have human bodies. And I know that sounds very silly to say, um, but I think we probably all have stories of situations where that simple fact hasn't been recognized and autism has sort of stood in as the explanation for everything that could be going on with someone. The reality is that autism doesn't cause urinary tract infections. Autism doesn't cause fever. Autistic people um, have normal health problems unrelated to their autism. We also tend to have other medical conditions that are more common in autistic people, and that can be dismissed as just, you know, well, they're just autistic, of course, they're going to have GI issues, and that's really harmful. Yes, it is more common for autistic people to have gastrointestinal issues, sleep issues, things like that, Um, but autistic people deserve treatment and support for those conditions. We deserve a better explanation than just, oh yeah, that's autism, we expect to see that. We deserve medical care that digs into why we specifically, in our body specifically, are having that issue and what can be done about it. Autistic people also frequently have other co-occurring medical conditions like connective tissue disorders, epilepsy, all kinds of things going on. Again, those need to be treated and taken seriously as they should be with any patient. Um, That said, autism does impact how we might experience medical conditions or our ability to communicate about those conditions to a provider. Um, Often it's much harder for autistic people to give conventional signals and use quite the right words um, to flag for our provider that something might be going on. We might be in extreme pain, but not be looking the way you'd normally expect someone to look when they're in pain. We often need our medical providers to actively look those underlying medical issues and explanations to do a little bit of digging to, again, slow down with us and consider, okay, if this isn't a person who's going to react when they're in pain, what other ways can I use to determine if they are, in fact, in pain or if there's a medical issue going on? We need you to, again, just be present and take that time with us. Um, Eighth key lesson or takeaway. Expectations really matter. Medical providers have enormous power to shape the expectations that are placed on people with developmental disabilities, whether that's the expectations of family members, the expectations of teachers and other service providers, the expectations of other medical providers and researchers, and that's a power to take really seriously. This is something we've seen over and over again in the autism world, certainly, but also across other developmental disabilities. And over and over again, what we've seen is that expectations have been set far, far too low. Um, I think the story of Down syndrome is a really good example, where 50 years ago, people with Down syndrome had extremely short lifespans, and parents were told that their child's Down syndrome wasn't going to walk, wasn't going to talk, wouldn't be able to learn, certainly wouldn't be able to learn to read, wouldn't have a job, wouldn't drive a car, wouldn't get married, wouldn't be able to raise a family, on and on and on. Um, And then a lot of things changed for people with Down syndrome over the last 50 years, and every single one of those expectations turned out to be wrong, every single one. Um, People with Down syndrome's lifespan certainly changed because of the medical advances in heart surgery, but the other major factor and the thing that overturned most of those expectations was the institutionalization, was realizing that when people with Down syndrome are supported to live in the community and to go to school with everybody else, um, they do learn. They communicate, they get jobs, they graduate, they go to college, they drive, they have families. Everything we thought we knew about Down syndrome 50 years ago was wrong. And Down syndrome is not an expectation. Um, I've met multiple kids with Angelman syndrome, sometimes with an autism diagnosis, sometimes not, who are described to me as, you know, the most capable, the most extraordinary person with Angelman syndrome that this person had ever met. Um, And this person actually wasn't extraordinary. The extraordinary thing was that they were given access to a communication device at an early age, and that's not something that had happened before. And again, we're finding out that what we thought was wrong. This happens over and over and over again, and autism is not an exception. So the job of providers is to recognize that the truth is we don't know what anybody's ceiling is. We don't know what the expectations should be. Our job isn't to predict the future. Our job is to set high expectations and focus on supporting people. Our job is to make sure that every person with a developmental disability, again, no matter how complex or intense their needs are, have all the tools and supports that they need to write their own future. Um, related to this, a key lesson that I'd like you all to leave with is that inclusion really is for everybody. No one is too autistic or too disabled for inclusion school, at work, in the community? This is a subtle question. There are 50 decades of research and practice um, backing this up. This has been well documented in the research literature. Our service systems often don't provide the supports needed to let people with intense disabilities, including a lot of autistic people, thrive in inclusive settings. That doesn't change the fact that we know that with the right supports, inclusion really does work for everybody. Um, as providers, you can play a key role in sharing that research, sharing that information, and helping families and individuals advocate for those supports. Um, and again, I just want to emphasize, this is not just something we've learned about autistic people. This is something we've learned from people with very, very complex intellectual and behavioral and medical needs. Finally, I know we're coming up on, well, it's 15 my time, I think it's 9.15 your time. Um, so I need to switch out of the lecture portion of this, but I really want to emphasize that these things are issues of human rights, everything we just talked about. These are not, again, just questions of things that are nice to have or best practices. These things pertain to your patient's civil and human rights, and you can play a pivotal role in making sure that they have access to those rights and are able to live the lives that they deserve and that we know are possible. So I appreciate you taking that responsibility deeply seriously, as I know you all do. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.